The FBI chief gives the Bureau's first ever warning about TikTok and explains why he's extremely concerned about the popular social media app. Are investors phasing out of China? Warren Buffett selling Chinese electric car maker stock and buying up shares in a Taiwanese microchip producer. Another American investor detailing why he stopped investing in China. On the other hand, some Western investors are buying in, seeing China's struggling real estate sector as a chance to get in on a possible future resurgence. Talks on reducing carbon emissions. As wealthy democracies stick to a coal phase-out plan, China is building new plants. And a short-lived taste of freedom after a mass protest. COVID-19-related lockdown orders lifted in Guangzhou City, but only briefly. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Ellie Hart, in for Tiffany Meyer. Before we turn to today's news, we'd like to introduce you to the sponsor of today's episode. Secure, the true solution for your digital privacy and security. Secure is a private and secure messaging and email solution hosted in Switzerland, using military-grade encryption and Swiss privacy laws, giving you true privacy. Secure is 100% private and does not collect or sell any of your personal data. Secure's Helix technology connects you securely to our Swiss servers without the need of a VPN, guaranteeing privacy and security for all your communications. Secure Messenger doesn't require your phone number or any personal data that hackers target. Chat by Invites allows you to chat privately and securely with anyone outside of your secure network without the need for others to download Secure. Secure Send offers you a private and secure way to email anyone outside of Secure. You won't find this level of privacy or security on any other email or instant messaging application. Visit secure.com. Regain and protect your privacy today. TikTok is facing new scrutiny. For the first time, the FBI chief is voicing what he called his extreme concern over the wildly popular social media app. NTD's Juliet Song has the story. Back, chair recognizes young lady from Speaking Tennessee. in a hearing about worldwide threats to America's homeland, the director of the FBI says the agency has national security concerns about TikTok. The Chinese-owned app is one of the most popular of its kind in the U.S., with over 80 million monthly users, most of them teenagers and young adults. But the head of the FBI noted there's a catch. They uh, include the possibility that the Chinese government could use it to control data collection on millions of users or control the recommendation algorithm, uh, which could be used for influence operations if they so chose, or uh, to control software on millions of devices, uh, which gives the opportunity to potentially technically compromise personal devices. Ray's comment is in response to a lawmaker's question. Congresswoman Harshbarger asked if the FBI considers TikTok a significant national security threat, following a report from Forbes. Forbes and other press reported that TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, planned to use TikTok to monitor the uh, physical location of specific Americans for the purposes of surveilling individual U.S. citizens. Ray said Harshbarger highlighted a very important threat. Under Chinese law, Chinese companies are required to essentially, and I'm going to shorthand here, basically do whatever the Chinese government wants them to in terms of sharing information or, or serving as a tool of the Chinese government. And so that's plenty of reason by itself to be extremely concerned. 
As for what's being done, Ray said he would give more information in a classified briefing. Responding to Ray's concerns, TikTok told NTD that while it can't comment on the specifics of those confidential discussions, they're confident that they're on a path to fully satisfy all reasonable U.S. national security concerns. Juliet Song, NTD News. Warren Buffett seems to be offloading his Chinese investments. The top investor has sold some of Berkshire Hathaway's stock in Chinese car company. To replace them, he purchased stock from a Taiwanese manufacturer. That Chinese car company is called BYD. Berkshire Hathaway sold all $145 million in the company's stock. After the sale, Berkshire still holds 16.6% of BYD's total shares listed on Hong Kong stock market. On the other hand, Berkshire bought more than $4.1 billion worth of stock in TSMC. The Taiwan-based microchip maker is the world's largest semiconductor manufacturer. The news sent TSMC shares soaring, closing about 8% up in Taiwan on Tuesday. Warren Buffett isn't the only one turning their attention from China to Taiwan. U.S.-based venture investor Tim Draper said on Monday that China is no longer a place to invest and has left the free market under Chinese leader Xi Jinping. On Monday, he visited Taiwan's space program in the tech hub of Xinchu City. He says he's looking for more investment opportunities in the island space sector. Draper was once a prominent investor in Chinese search engine Baidu. He bought a 28% stake in the company some 20 years ago at startup. The value of those shares once soared to about $1 billion. But Draper says he's got an early indication that China was going to leave the free market. So he stopped investing in China. He didn't give details about what tipped him off. Though he did mention China's economic struggles under Beijing's strict anti-pandemic curbs, Draper also noted one main concern, a potential attack on Taiwan by China, commenting on the possibility. He said he hopes Chinese leader Xi Jinping, quote, hasn't lost his mind completely. Despite China's economic struggles, some Western investors see China's troubled real estate sector as a chance to buy in at a discount. That's on the hope that China's economy will rise again in the future. U.S. investment bank Goldman Sachs launched a joint venture in China last month, boosting investment in local infrastructure. The funding will focus on projects located in China's first tier regions, like the city of Shanghai. Early this month, Singapore real estate giant Capital Land also took on new China stake. It set up $550 million to invest in Chinese business parks. A climate summit in Egypt is slowly coming to a close. It's called the United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP27 for short. As for the top decisions being made, many world powers have agreed to continue phasing out coal. At the same time, China is still building new coal plants. Despite the energy crunch and the wake of the Ukraine war, countries are making climate promises. Wealthy democratic countries from the European Union and OECD, most of them, Together, they pledged to close more than 75% of the coal power capacity from 2010 to 2030. Coal is the single biggest fuel used to generate electricity. Some countries like Britain and Germany have delayed closing coal plants this winter. That's due to concerns over Russian energy supplies. But overall, phase-out dates remain intact. Meanwhile, China has pledged to bring the country's carbon emissions to a peak by 2030. That means Beijing will be increasing its carbon emission until 2030, with a plan to achieve carbon neutrality by 2060. China ranks as world's number one for carbon emissions. 
Globally, there are still plans to construct almost 300 gigawatts of new coal power capacity. Around two-thirds of that is set to be built in China. A whirlwind of meetings is on the docket for China, followed by Monday's talk with U.S. President Joe Biden. Communist leader Xi Jinping is holding talks with leaders from four U.S. allies on Tuesday. Let's take a closer look. China's Xi Jinping is returning to global stage at the G20 summit. On Xi's checklist, talks with the world leaders from Australia, France, the Netherlands, and South Korea. As Australia-China ties deteriorate, Xi's meeting with Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was perhaps the most anticipated. During their talks, she told Albanese the two countries have great potential for trade. China is Australia's biggest trading partner, but their relations began to soar over a trade dispute that began in 2020, as well as Beijing's efforts to grow its influence in the Pacific Islands. France also hardened its stance on China in recent years. During his meeting with French President Macron, she expressed hope that Paris would provide a non-discriminatory trade environment. The European Union has classified China as an economic competitor and systemic rival. Leaders have also voiced concerns about the EU's economic dependence on China. As for the Netherlands, she urged the country not to politicize trade. The remark appears to refer to a request from the U.S. asking allied countries to ban microchip exports to China. The Netherlands' largest high-tech company is a key maker of semiconductor equipment. Last year, its sales to China exceeded two billion dollars. Following Xi's meeting with the Dutch Prime Minister, he made a similar appeal with South Korea's president, asking to boost high-tech manufacturing cooperation. South Korea owns one of the world's biggest memory chip makers. Almost 40 percent of South Korea's semiconductor exports went to China last year. After a mass protest Monday night, residents in southern Chinese megacity are getting the freedom they asked for, at least for a little while. Lockdown measures were briefly lifted in the city this week, but the reopening was short-lived. Here's more. Monday night, hundreds of people took to the streets in Guangzhou, China's southern industrial metropolis. They came out to protest draconian lockdown measures ordered in the name of eliminating COVID-19. Fed-up residents smashed through barricades and overturned a police car. The next day, stay-at-home mandates were lifted in at least two districts in the city. Residents celebrated. Many migrant workers were seen leaving the city, returning to their hometowns. But the reprieve didn't last long. On Wednesday, residents were again confined to their neighborhoods. In the same city, a mother recently posted a video on social media. In the clip, the mother explains her nine-month-old daughter was running a fever, but adds she had no medication at home and couldn't take her daughter to the hospital. That's because she was barred from leaving the house under local COVID-19 restrictions. The video shows her arguing with healthcare workers at the entrance to her neighborhood. But they didn't let her through. The mother then collapsed and asked the guards whether she should go get a kitchen knife or jump off the building to commit suicide. In another video, the mother sobs while saying authorities don't care about residents' lives. I don't know what to do. 
露出人命来，才会来救你吗？你看我女儿哭的，整个月发烧，管都不会管。It's unclear when the city's lockdown will be lifted. A 4.7 billion dollar railroad project in Kenya, once a beacon of the country's partnership with Beijing, now dumps off in an empty field. New information from the Kenyan government is revealing details about the controversial transit line, called the Standard Gauge Railway. The project fell under a 2014 contract with the China Road and Bridge Corporation. Since then, it's faced criminal accusations and millions in budget overshoots. The train runs from Mombasa to Nairobi, the Kenyan capital. From there, it ends in a field around 200 miles from Uganda. The project's original destination, which Beijing halted when Kenya started struggling to pay its loan. The latest accounts of the deal expose sweeping powers the deal gave Beijing. Those include holding all arbitration over project disputes in China, and mandating Kenya to come to China first when purchasing goods, specifically with the revenue generated from the railway. Details of the deal also couldn't be made public without Beijing's approval. On the financial side, the contract came with sky-high interest rates and a unique caveat: if Kenya defaulted on any other external loan. The default clause on the railroad loan would automatically kick in, meaning the country would be forced to pay back the loan and its interest immediately, and give China the right to halt additional funding. That's according to a New York Times report. The strategy is one often seen in other projects under China's Belt and Road Initiative. Dubbed Beijing's debt trap diplomacy, the initiative offers funding to developing nations for bridges, train lines, seaports, and more. But when the nations become unable to pay, Beijing takes control of the newly built assets. Experts call it a tool to expand the Chinese Communist Party's influence. Kenya's National Bureau of Statistics says the nation now owes more of its debt to China than any other country. What's more, significantly, in 2020, a Kenyan court deemed the railroad contract illegal. Coming up, experts say the U.S. military is stretched around the globe and is being forced to fight on multiple fronts at the same time. Grant Newsham, senior fellow with the Center for Security Policy, says Beijing is pulling strings on the other side. What's the solution? We sat down with Newsham for more insight. More on that after the break. Here on China in Focus. A recent U.S. withdrawal of military aircraft from Japan. Plus, multiple authoritarian regimes testing the waters, as these and other issues spark concerns. Some are not asking: Is the U.S. too stretched to handle its global missions? What's the solution? Tiffany Meyer sat down with Grant Newsham, senior fellow with the Center for Security Policy, to learn more. So I want to begin with Japan because it seems the U.S. is retiring a bunch of older fighter jets there, but they haven't released a timeline for when the replacement ones will come in. And some lawmakers are stressing about that. So, what do you see happening here? Where is this headed? Well, what's happened is the U.S. Air Force has announced it's removing two squadrons of F-15s from Kadena Air Force Base in Okinawa. That's actually about a quarter of the permanently based fighters the Air Force has west of the international dateline. So it's a substantial chunk.、Uh, the Air Force says that they are going to replace these with some other aircraft,、uh, F-22s. It seems brought down from Alaska, and they say they will replace this with a rotational coverage, which means instead of having、uh, fighters based in Okinawa permanently. 
they're going to just rotate through units every six months or so. So the Japanese are not all that happy about it because it's the difference between actually being somewhere all the time or coming in periodically, even if it is on a permanent sort of end-to-end -end rotation. So it creates some uh, doubts on the Japanese side about American commitment. And on the Chinese side, well, you know, when your enemy is actually kind of announced he's going to withdraw forces, while you're getting beefed up and ready for a fight, well, you kind of think maybe he isn't all that serious. And Grant, it seems, say, from Japan's perspective, because after World War II, they're only allowed to defend themselves, really. So they're kind of depending on us to protect them in some way. So with the U.S. basically, you know, leaving these gaps, is that going to embolden China to be more aggressive in the region? The Chinese are going to be aggressive throughout the region no matter what they do with those F-15 squadrons uh, on Okinawa. That's not going to change, but it's one sort of piece of the puzzle that kind of chips away at this perception of American uh, resolve. But when you mentioned, though, uh, the Japanese, and while they're not happy with what the Air Force has announced, uh, one does ask, well, why couldn't the Japanese just fill in? If the Americans are leaving, couldn't the Japanese put uh, some of their own fighters down in Okinawa? Uh, and operate from there. Um, but the problem is, as you've mentioned, the Japanese have just been pathologically dependent on U.S. defense coverage for decades. And as a result, they don't have the, the Air Force, the air self-defense resources to fill in without leaving a gap somewhere else. And it reflects the, the problem with the entire Japan self-defense force uh, that is just too small for what it now needs to do. And in fact, what you're seeing with the U.S. Air Force announcing this withdrawal of F-15s, that's partly the result of the Air Force being stretched globally. The U.S. Air Force does not have the resources that it needs to handle everything that it's required to do around the world. Uh, it has, uh, has things it has to do in Europe, it has the Middle East with the Iranians acting up, it's got North Korea to take care of, and China. Now, any one of these would be a, a tall order, but you put the four of these together at the same time, and the Air Force, as I say, is stretched. It has not been properly funded, uh, I would say, or some experts say, for the last uh, 20, 30 years. And what we're seeing now is too many require, too many mission requirements and too few resources or too old resources. And it, we, are, we are stretched, make no mistake about it. So when you, if we're picking on the Air Force, well, that's fine. Uh, but they receive their budget from our civilian leadership, from Congress uh, and Department of Defense has a hand in it. And if they have not been properly resourcing an Air Force uh, for all these years, well, they shouldn't be surprised that now we're like this Dutch boy uh, with his finger in the dike and the dike springing more leaks than uh, he's got fingers. And Grant, you mentioned we're seeing now North Korea and Iran, Russia and China being all, you know, more aggressive, it seems. And on the North Korea side, they seem to be launching a lot more missile tests or, you know, ballistic nuclear tests almost. So is this new for North Korea? Is this a new form of aggression? What do you make of this? Uh, this is different. They shot things closer to South Korea than they've done before. But keep in mind, when they shoot these missiles towards Japan, the route they are taking is actually the same route they would take um, to hit American bases in Hawaii or even Guam. 
And there is a sort of an implicit message in here that it's not just Japan, but you Americans, you're uh, in range. And the North Koreans are improving their capabilities, they're improving their accuracy, their delivery systems, and it's in some ways just an engineering problem. Uh, but to me, the important thing to remember in all of this, these things the North Koreans are doing, and these are provocative, uh, they would not do it without Beijing's approval, either explicit or implicit, and I would suggest it's explicit, although done quietly. Uh, the Chinese could close down North Korea in an afternoon by turning off the, the fuel, the food, the electricity, uh, if they wanted to. But it is in China's interest to have North Korea doing these things. Uh, it distracts the Americans. It causes them to di divert attention and resources uh, to North Korea. It does the same thing with the Japanese. And these are resources that cannot be de devoted towards Taiwan, for example. So this is the important thing is Beijing is not displeased with what they're saying and I would suggest they have actually given the go ahead uh, and it is very much in uh, Beijing's interest to do this. Does the do parts of the US government admit this? Not really. Some recognize it, but there's the sense, well, we have to have China's help on climate change, on transnational crime, even though China's behind a lot of the transnational crime. Uh, but and the belief that China doesn't want North Korea to be doing these things. But I think that is about as wrong as you can possibly be. On that note, Grant, there are people like Casey Fleming or Frank Gaffney who are calling it a new axis of evil. And they say, you know, Iran, Russia, North Korea. And they say, but the Communist Party of China is behind it all. They're like the real power behind it. So given that, and if that's true, what should the U.S. do in response? Are we going to see a new allied force, for instance? Well, you hope so. You know, it'd be nice if the free nations actually did get together and say, look, we've got a problem. We're going to do something about it. You know, we are at war. If you look at our opponents, our enemies, that they've actually started it. You know, they just uh, have a different definition of war than we do. But what you have to do is, uh, one of the first big things is to stop funding the Chinese. Uh, that would be sort of a, I'd say, step number one. Uh, but also, you notice the Biden administration, the Obama administration before it, has been hell-bent on getting a deal with the Iranians. And that is basically going to uh, allow the, the Iranians to get nuclear weapons. It's going to um, involve providing the Iranians with tens, if not hundreds, of billions of dollars. Uh, and the, one of the, it's not just an irony, it's just really just an absurdity, is that the uh, Biden administration is so keen to get a deal with the Iranians uh, that they are asking the Russians to help us get that deal, to have them intercede with the Iranians with who they have a good relationship. And at the same time, we're supplying Ukraine that is killing the Russians in industrial on an industrial scale. Recognize your enemies for what they are. You know, it's not like we've picked a fight. Every one of these countries has picked the fight with us. So get your financial house in order, get your, build up your, your economy, uh, somehow create some sort of political unity uh, with domestically, uh, but also, as I say, it's that economic angle that's particularly important. And nobody likes to, a few people say, like to think of the idea of just setting up two blocks in the, in the world, really a free nation block, an economic block, and one with the, uh, the dictatorships. 
uh, the thugocracies, you know, let them have their own. You have to realize that we may be going back to what it was in the days of the old Soviet Union, uh, where the free nations did business with each other and the other nations did business with each other. Uh, that is where we probably need to go because we, you can't have a situation like you have today where the, the Germans, uh, for example, are, are talking about their security interests in the Asia Pacific and they sent all of two aircraft out to train with the Japanese uh, and they have their one ship that they've sent out to the uh, Pacific. Meanwhile, German industry, the German government is hell-bent on getting into the Chinese market and staying in the Chinese market. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Ellie Hart. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the rest of your week.